The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. But hospital grade clean. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the metro. No mask, no metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the DC area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. Molly Hemingway is a senior editor at the Federalist. We enjoy her work on Brett Bear's uh, show, Special Report with Brett Bear. Uh, she is a thinker, she is a writer. And uh, she's written a brand new book about the Kavanaugh confirmation. And uh, what a pleasure it is. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. So we've been trying to get Molly Hemingway on the Armstrong and Getty show for a very, very long time. We couldn't be bigger fans. For some reason, she's ducked us all these years, and we finally... Wow. Wow, that's a fine how-do-you-do. Molly, mm. I'd like to apologize for the belligerence and ill manners of my co-host. How are you? I'm great, and it's great to be here with you. Well, we are actually very big fans of you. Your intelligence, your forcefulness in making your arguments. Also, your occasional, just barely perceptible eye roll when you're there on a special report and a particularly numb-skulled comment is made. (laughs) Your lack of a poker face is more than appreciated. Yes, I've been told I need to work on that, but I Don't. Uh, I do my I do my best. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's 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 absolutely a, a a respectful exchange of ideas and not a cable shouting match, which is why we like it so much. But the occasional glance by Molly Hemingway is is appreciated. So anyway, so Molly Hemingway joins us today to talk about justice on trial, the Kavanaugh confirmation, and the future of the Supreme Court. And Molly, I've uh, seen you talk about this book in a couple of different settings, though I haven't read it, but. It's important that we soberly look at that crazy couple of months that actually was a circus and a national disgrace, as Kavanaugh described it. Why did you decide to write the book? 
Right. My co-author, Carrie Severino, and I lived through the, the hearings. She was working on the nomination. I was covering it. We knew it was an important story. We, we believe strongly it was the most important thing to happen to the country last year. We wanted to just get an accurate description of what happened, learn what was going on behind the scenes. And we interviewed more than 100 people, including the president and vice president and members of the Supreme Court and senators and and people close to the Kavanaugh family and the Blasey Ford family, and just were able to say what happened and why it happened and and get the actual facts down before people forget them. Hey, I want to get into the timeline and and the various things and when they happened and what order and who knew what when and what newspaper knew this but printed it anyway. All that stuff is interesting to me. But how close did it ever come to them actually pulling Kavanaugh? Did it ever get dicey? It definitely got dicey, but it got dicey on the Senate side. It didn't get dicey from the White House side. So the, you know, whatever else you want to say about the Trump administration, they'd kind of prepared for such a thing as this type of confirmation battle. They had thoroughly vetted all candidates for any kind of problems that could arise. They knew their history enough to know that sometimes there are last minute shenanigans where people try and pull, you know, dirty tricks to sideline nominees. And they anticipated it and they were prepared and perhaps no other administration in history was going to withstand this type of pressure like this one would have there's hardly been another human being on earth let alone a president that was so you know perfect for being able to withstand the slings and arrows of one of these scandals he's been living it his whole adult life he doesn't he doesn't go into the fetal position when the media is on a roll with some sex scandal he's been doing this his whole life so that that was a perfect exactly and under Understanding the presumption of innocence and why that's important, why people need to actually prove allegations without them just being believed. But the Senate was not they were not stalwarts. A lot of the senators were ready to ready to run throughout the process. Uh, You know, the story of Jeff Flake is well known about how he was back and forth about the elevator. Oh, God. Yeah. But there were other Republicans, too, that were that were kind of wavering. And we tell the story of one senator on uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee who went to Susan Collins and tried to get her to agree to go to the White House and get and get them to pull the Kavanaugh nomination. And she said that he did this after Christine Blasey Ford testified. And she said, well, I'd like to wait until we hear from Brad Kavanaugh, of course. So Outrageous. he was a stalwart, but not everybody else was. Yeah. So listen, um, if you were to just describe the entire Kavanaugh circus uh, briefly for folks. Well, if I were going to, I'd probably hearken back to Joseph Welch, who was the guy who famously asked Joseph McCarthy at long last, have you no sense of decency? Um, was this just an abandonment completely of any sense of decency uh, in favor of just achieving the end you want? I mean, it was so ugly. It was, and it was. it got ugly very soon. I think people... Uh, forget what was happening early on within moments of him being nominated. There was a big protest that had been pre-planned on the steps of the Supreme Court. You had people announce that they were opposed to his nomination before he before he had even been named. I mean, they were saying they would oppose anyone who was a nominee. And so there were problems early on. There were people getting arrested in the first round of hearings. 200 people got arrested, people who were flown in from out of out of the area to do protests where they were um, they had their bail paid for and everything like that. So it was pretty chaotic from the beginning. I'm trying to figure out where's the timeline on this whole thing, because there was a, the, 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 the piece that came out was at The New Yorker a couple of weeks ago 
about Al Franken, Stuart Smalley, and how so many people regret it, regret that now. It makes you understand the Kavanaugh thing and the Al Franken thing, how the witch trials happened. I mean, because we get into these fevers, apparently. that Now, most Democrats look back on the Al Franken thing and think, what were we doing? Why did we run him out of office? And Al Franken's thinking, why didn't I stand up to that? So, But that was the, that was the era and setting we were in for this whole Kavanaugh thing, right? Oh, well, it's even more than that. And I actually found I'm very sympathetic to the idea that Al Franken got railroaded, that people were just in a mob hysteria type moment and that he had to be the sacrificial lamb because of the way that politicians had been playing up the, um, you know, the Me Too moment. But the woman who wrote that piece in The New Yorker, Jane Mayer, was one of the prime instigators of the Kavanaugh mob. Awesome. And she wrote the second piece. You know, so first you have Christine Blasey Ford come out. She writes this other piece about a second accuser who spent six days alone with her attorney to come up with an allegation. She was very foggy on anything. She had nobody to corroborate her story. And Jane Mayer published that story in the pages of New Yorker and said that she did it precisely to show a pattern of alleged misconduct, which is not a journalistic standard that I would encourage people to uphold. So it's great that she has come late to the notion that people should be innocent until proven guilty and that due process matters. But she is the last person on earth I would have making that case, given how she was not just about Kavanaugh, but also she was, of course, the author of one of the worst books about Justice Thomas uh, from decades ago. Well, I'm glad you pointed that out. So would you was that your uh, is that what you'd cite as the most immoral and disgusting um, episode within the the greater story? or, Or do you have another that's a favorite? Well, there were a lot of there was a lot of media misbehavior in this story. And of sure. course, it's very important to take any allegations seriously to investigate them and, and think about whether you are truly about to nominate someone to the, or you're putting someone on the Supreme Court who is a serial rapist, which is where the allegations got by the end. Um, Regularly Michael participates Adonati. in gang rapes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's where we were. Of a, leader of a gang rape cartel that roamed the suburbs of Maryland was was the allegation made by Michael Avenatti and his client, Julie Swetnick. And yes, they were referred for criminal prosecution for making that false claim. Um, and so were a few other people who made false claims against Kavanaugh. But it's one thing to make the false claim. It's another thing that you had people who really should have been more sensible believing the claim or, or publishing it or putting it out there. And NBC News knew at the time you know, before the confirmation, they knew that Michael Avenatti's supposed witness, second witness, who would corroborate these crazy allegations, they knew she was saying that he, what he claimed about her was not true. But they sat on that for weeks. They knew it before the confirmation vote, and then they kind of like put it out quietly a few weeks after he was confirmed. And again, that's just really bad behavior that decreases people's trust in the media to accurately tell Oh my God, story. that's beyond bad behavior. you got to get out of the business if you're willing to do something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's not bias. That's just, uh, that's crime. It's fraud. Oh, yeah. It's astounding. Yeah, that that should be criminally prosecutable for ruining a person's life and image and, and reputation and everything like that. Um, what I, I remember this story barely, and this one was so amazing to me, that a letter, it was in a, in a in just in an envelope to a newspaper, and that was pretty much all the information, you know, scrawled on there, Kavanaugh raped me. And that was about it, and newspapers were willing to run with it. Was that What was that whole story? I wouldn't say it was quite that bad, but what was interesting is Christine Blasey Ford sends a letter to her representative. She claims she's unclear on how to reach a U.S. senator, which is a little bit of a weird claim to make given that she's a Ph.D., uh, you know, 
she's a professor at a university. It's kind of odd to claim that you don't know how to reach your no. own U.S. senator. Never heard of but her Google. Representative, <laughs> her representative, Anna Eshoo, puts her in contact with Senator Dianne Feinstein, the ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And that's where things get really weird, because she writes this letter to Feinstein at the end of July. She says she doesn't want her name to be out publicly. Well, the Senate has a process for how to handle allegations against nominees. It's completely confidential. It is actually it goes through the FBI, um, but everyone's kept all the information is kept confidential. It protects the accuser and the accused, and you can actually investigate the claim. And Diane Feinstein, for some reason, circumvents that process. Instead, she connects the accuser with a high-profile attorney who's known for rolling out. Um, like PR campaigns against uh, against high-profile men who are accused of sexual misconduct. And they, they circumvent the process that would have kept it confidential, and then they arrange for a big PR rollout, which was against the stated interest of the accuser. Now, it is also true that the accuser, for saying that she didn't want her name to be public or anything to be public, the first call she made was to the Washington Post in early July. So there, you know, there's reason to think that maybe what she claimed she wanted was a bit at odds with her behavior. But, um, but either way, her stated her stated preference was to not have her name be public, and everybody who had the information set about to make it public, and that was uh, unfortunate. It's probably a minor point, but do you have an idea, an opinion on whether Die Fire herself was the engine for that, or was it activist staffers that are going behind the old gal's back? Oh. So we, you know, we interviewed a lot of people involved in the process, senators and their staff. They all actually speak extremely well of Dianne Feinstein uh-huh. and extremely poorly about her staff. They feel that her staff was taking advantage of her, that um, that she's older, she, her, she um, throughout the day maybe gets more tired and whatnot. And they felt that the staff was taking advantage of that situation to do things in her name that were not what she would want. And we had many examples of this, how she would negotiate things that were actually favorable to Democrats uh, throughout the process, and her staff would then renegotiate it in a way that was so absurd that the Republicans just sort of stopped working with them. Um, And they really, a lot of people had a higher regard for her than they did her staff, and they really felt that that, um, in fact, they get so upset about this. At one point, we tell the story of a bunch of senators who literally almost physically fight each other. They're so frustrated about what's happening and that disconnect between the, the minority staff and the majority staff. You know, I expect politicians to behave badly, and, uh, and maybe I should hold them to higher standards and expect more, but I expect them to. But maybe it's because I'm in media. I expect the media to be better. And I was speaking of the particular letter that went to the San Diego Union Tribune that showed up. It was to Kamala Harris's office, then got forwarded to the San Diego Union Tribune. There was just an accusation that Kavanaugh and a buddy of his raped me, and it just it, it had no information. Was not that who the I am. on a boat? Yeah, it was unsigned. I think, I think it was. Yeah. yeah, it was unsigned. It had no return address. It had nothing, and it actually made it into the into the into the media and got talked about. That I mean, that's just disgraceful. It's really that all standards were thrown out the window for how to handle something like this because i guess people thought that reputational harm was not a big deal or that it was justified because of political reasons like political opposition but there were all sorts of allegations you had people making claims i think i just heard one of you mentioned the claim that there was a rape on a boat in a city, in a state that like Kavanaugh had never even been right. to and the senator takes it to the uh, to Chuck Grassley but he also releases it to the media who run with it and and 
these are the types of things, you know, anyone can make an allegation. And it's important for people who are gatekeepers like the media to investigate the claim and decide whether it is it meets the standard of, of should this be published. And there was not a lot of that going on. And that's very unfortunate because there is real harm caused by reputational damage. You said there was no buckling uh, of, out of the White House. They, they didn't uh, get close to pulling Kavanaugh. How close did Kavanaugh come to uh, saying, I don't need this, his, his wife or friends or whoever egging him on saying, just get out? We report that when he was being considered for the nomination, his wife actually prayed that he wouldn't get the nomination. They had gone through two very difficult confirmation battles years prior. He had a lifetime appointment on a federal court. Their life was really good. She just didn't want to go through it again. And that was before she had any idea how bad it would get. But he always had this idea that he would give it his best for everything. So he just, you know, if he was up for it, he was going to try and get it. If he doesn't get it, that's fine. And then once he gets the nomination, he's going to try and actually make it through the process. And if he doesn't, that's fine. Um, there is a change. So he, he, he was never going to back out, and he had the support of his family. But there was this change you saw in the reopened hearing where it's not even about getting to sit on the Supreme Court, but really about whether he's going to be able to be around children anymore. You know, at this right. point, you have the media saying that he shouldn't be around children. Like, I don't even know where they were coming up with some of these things. He shouldn't be but coaching his daughter's basketball team and that sort yeah, of thing with, with his and, background. Whoa, what a terrible thing to say about a dad. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Right. Um, so did you... Did you did, got more emotional about it at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I would, too. I He was pretty emotional, as we all remember in that hearing, but I would have been... I, I, I might have physically attacked somebody. You start telling me I can't be around my kids' friends because I'm so dangerous, right. such a sexual predator. That'd make you insane. Did you? Do you ever talk to anybody in journalism? Say, I gotta ask you, how did you sit on that story? Or you knew that probably wasn't true. How did? How did you? How do you live with yourself? Well, that's one of the things that does bother us that we look at is how. Prior to the confirmation, you have this feeding frenzy of stories all alleging really serious wrongdoing. The moment he's confirmed, it all just goes away. And you have to wonder there, if it were bad that someone were being considered for the Supreme Court who had these allegations, it's so much worse if they actually are on the court. So there's no reason why the story should have stopped if they believed them to be true. Sure. And that they didn't pursue the stories, and it just kind of disappeared. And even, you know, we, we wrote this book. It's a number one bestseller and the New York Times and Washington Post have admitted that in their bestseller list, but they haven't covered the news that we break about um, about what happened behind the scenes. You know, normally when you interview Supreme Court justices and key players. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital grade clean. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the metro. No mask, no metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. For all you foodies out there, I'm unwrapping a McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel. Ooh, look at this steak. And the juice running down the side. Got a little bit on the wrapper here. Mmm. And then the fluffy egg. And real cheese folded over the side, looking just so good. Mm-mm. Grilled onions and a butter bagel, too. Thumbs up for McDonald's steak, egg, and cheese bagel for breakfast. Love it. Mm. I participate in McDonald's. There's a major news story. You would get some media coverage. And they're not even covering the book, which is a big, 
a big thing with a lot of news that is broken in it that has never been reported before about Kennedy's retirement or about Christine Blasey Ford's friends not believing her. I mean, these are things that are just reported that should be covered and they're not even acknowledging them. Well, that would open up that would open up. Yeah, exactly. That would open up a can of worms that they'd have to uh, account for. Well, I'd say given the seriousness of what you're writing about and the the impact that it's had to ignore it is, uh, well, it speaks louder than words, honestly. Um, You're you're a serious journalist, so you might not be willing to go here. How nutty is Blasey Ford? I mean, as you looked into (laughs) her life and her friends. Uh, my my personal take was she believed what she was saying. It doesn't mean it happened. I think she believed it, though. I don't know. I don't know. And we definitely don't get into, into pretending like we can know what was going on inside someone's brain or whatnot. But we did talk to a lot of people who are friends with her. And they painted a really mixed picture. They all actually really like her. And they thought she was a very nice person. They did acknowledge that she was very political, very motivated by her support of abortion, that she scrubbed her Facebook page before she went public, um, that her behavior, her description of herself or her characterization of herself in high school was at odds with what they remembered. But you know, these are people who are lifelong friends, and they painted a pretty complicated picture. She had no evidence to support her allegations, and she named four people, including a lifelong friend who said not only did she not remember such an occasion, she remembered the summer quite well. And for her not to remember anything matching this description was notable. That friend also reported that she had been pressured to change her story by mutual acquaintances of the two, that she didn't appreciate that pressure. So these were, you know, these are all things that we cover in the book, and it's um, it's important and noteworthy. Well, and, and Ms. Blasey Ford, and, and I do not know what happened. I was not there. And crazy people get raped, and sluts get raped, and, and whoever perpetrates that sort of thing ought to be punished severely. But she had some pretty severe emotional problems, too. Um, I mean, just credibility-wise, she is a little nutty, as Jack said, but I, I know you, you don't want to go I, there. I would just say, no, it's it's not, I don't know if it's emotional. I, I would just say that Rachel Mitchell, the the sex crimes prosecutor who does the forensic interview of her oh, under right. very difficult circumstances right. on live national oh, television, impossible. did explore some of the inconsistencies. For instance, we were told that the hearing had to be delayed because of a, of a terrifying, crippling fear of flying. Right. And she points out that not only does she fly all the time for professional reasons, she does it for personal reasons and lists her primary hobby as international surf travel, which involves not just flying, but like flying over large expanses of the Pacific Ocean and island hopping. And so <laughs> the claims that were made were at odds with the reality um, that she herself testified to. Under That's her. a very generous way to put it. So this is just an opinion question uh, to you as an acute observer of the political scene. It, it it seems to me that this trend can't continue much further. Oh, my God, yeah. Unless you accuse somebody of being Hitler, reincarnate, or the Antichrist. No, you or, can't or, go much further than that. Yeah, where where does it go from here? Well, and this has happened before. You saw this in the Bork hearings, the Thomas hearings. Uh, there were other other hearings where you've seen some pretty outlandish claims that are made. Um, It happened here. I think people would be naive to think it won't happen in the future. One of the things we show is that it tends to happen not because of particular nominees so much as when there's an ideological shift in play for for the court. So Neil Gorsuch was replacing Antonin Scalia. That's not a big shift. So nobody 
freaks out about it. When a Trump nominee is replacing Anthony Kennedy, who's a swing vote, well, that's a bigger issue. And if one of the liberal bloc justices were to retire or have a seat open up uh, and they were to be replaced by a Trump nominee, I think you would expect it oh my to God. become like an ap- apocalyptic type battle. And it's not going to be about whether, you know, the nominee really has a problem in their past so much as whether people feel threatened by a change on the court. Well, right. So if the notorious RBG actually, you know, can't do it anymore and Trump gets to appoint another Supreme Court justice, the way he's appointed so many justices at various levels across the country, that would be, are there people out there that would be willing to to stick their neck out and even even try to make it through that gauntlet? it's certainly, and there might be people who are willing to stick their neck out, but aren't willing to have their family go through it. Oh, so, yeah, that's a good point. There, there are all sorts of people who just cannot imagine putting their loved ones through this type of battle, which is why it's important to hold people accountable for making false allegations, for circumventing processes that are designed to protect nominees and people who accuse them. And it, there hasn't been a lot of accountability at this point, and it's important that people know the history and know it well, and tell people that, you know, it's understandable that political battles will be politically waged, but there should be limits to what you're willing to do or able to do uh, as you go after people. Hey, it just occurs to me, the three examples you, we just gave here, so you got Kavanaugh, Bork, and Clarence Thomas, those are all Republicans that Democrats went off, went after in a, in a very ugly way. Do we have any examples where the parties are flipped? No, I mean, Republicans play hardball on this, too. You might remember that when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to fill Scalia's seat, they just said, we're not even going to have hearings about right. this. And that was a, that was something that bothered a lot of people. Now, they didn't go after Garland. First it bothered me. It was a clever move and it worked, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it, it wasn't fair. They, they, made the, they made the claim before Garland was even named which is a big difference, an important difference. So they didn't go after him personally. They went after saying, we're just not even going to hold hearings. We're not going to consider anyone that you put forth. So Republicans play hardball, but less personally. And, of course, the big issue here is the court has become this way that people uh, accomplish things when legislatures fail to accomplish what they want. So they use the court to push through their progressive ideology. And, and so the court is kind of responsible for this itself. The more political they are, the more political people will be about nomination battles. The better course of action would be simply to do their job, which is determine whether a law is constitutional or not. Um, And that can be a law written by Democrats or Republicans. You just determine, is it constitutional or not? And when you don't do that and you make it more political, well, you're going to have a lot of political battles. What was it? uh, Was it Ben Sass or uh, who was talking about uh, quite uh, persuasively not long ago? Yeah, it was him. About the fact that the Supreme Court's been elevated to such astounding heights because Congress won't do its damn job. And so you almost have to have a, a nine person legislative body figuring out what the hell Congress means. Well, I I do think that the Congress has passed a lot of its responsibility to the administrative state, clearly executive branch agencies. And then that does create this huge branch of administrative law where the courts have to decide whether something's constitutional or not. So so Congress has uh, been part of the problem. But really, even so, even when that's their job, rather than um, make political decisions, as the court has done too many times, you know, whether it's like redefining marriage or inventing rights. To, to abortion. You know, these are things better handled through the legislative process and uh, and that people should litigate them through the, the court of public opinion rather than the actual Supreme Court. 
So you and Carrie Severino have digested this uh, ugly episode as thoroughly as absolutely anybody. Uh, looking to the future, and of course the subtitle includes the future of the Supreme Court, but looking to the future of Supreme Court hearings, if you were to advise, say, an administration on how to counter... The Beto O'Rourke administration, for instance. Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> how to counter the fever pitch, the wild allegations, the utter journalistic irresponsibility, uh, what would your counsel be? Well, I actually think the Trump administration handled it really well. They started their vetting during the primary campaign, not even not even in, not waiting until they had the actual uh, Republican nomination, but they started going through candidates, figuring out who had the right approach to the law, this originalist approach to whether something is constitutional or not. They looked to see had they shown that they have the right approach approach through multiple opinions and a track record that shows they're willing to make unpopular decisions that are correct under pressure. And they really did look for courage. Do they have the courage of their convictions? That's what you're going to need to get through this type of process. One of the Supreme Court justices we talked to was kind of pointing out, if you can't make it through this brutal process, and it's kind of brutal for everyone to one degree or another, then maybe you shouldn't be serving on the court. You know, it, it requires a lot of courage to to make the proper decision and um if you don't have if you don't if you can't make it through a tough process then uh you might not have what it takes to withstand all the pressure that will be coming your way once you do sit on the court you know molly hemingway we are fanboys here on the armstrong and getty I show hate for that you. term never and, use that term. and we're on all across the country including in washington dc and and uh just hoping that uh, we can get you on on a regular basis to talk about that we play clips from you and then pretend you're here that's what we do <laughs> i love it <laughs> it's sad <laughs> molly hemingway hey what a pleasure a terrific book can't wait to read it and uh, and we appreciate the conversation well, while we got you on the line i gotta ask i mean we just finished when we're taping this two nights of democratic debates who's going to be the nominee who do you think i'm really not sure i think i, I i'm really not sure and until i am sure i don't like to speculate too much I think Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren are strong. I think there's something about Marianne Williamson that I wouldn't, which I know sounds absurd and crazy, but she's the only one that says anything actually interesting usually. Oh, how about my boy Yang? He's pretty fun. (laughs) He's pretty interesting. I don't know if his, uh, his, what his platform is, universal basic income and no circumcision, which I'm not sure how palatable that <laughs> well, it's not in my top five well, well but speaking of palatable i mean if any of the candidates run on health care for illegals free health care for illegals they don't have a chance of beating trump do they it was so interesting to watch these debates where you have the people desperately trying to plead with the more radical candidates to moderate their position somewhat and then the radical people getting very angry at being told that their ideas are yeah. too extreme for the general populace so just watching that back and forth with people just saying can you please not be so crazy if we're going to have a if we're going to have a shot of beating trump and then the people saying nope we're going to be crazier I, yeah i think uh, as it stands right now and it's amazing you certainly wouldn't have guessed this a couple of years ago trump's going to get reelected and win like 48 states Against some just crazy out there AOC Green New Deal health care for illegals candidate. Yeah. Wow, what a historic moment that will be. Um, it'll be interesting to watch, but I certainly think he has a lot of advantages right now that are under noted by people in the media. And of course, like the more crazy the people in the media get where they're just they're just becoming almost rabid in their dislike of Trump, not almost, they're totally rabid, oh, yeah. and it just makes it hard to take them seriously when they try to levy critiques. It just comes off as absurd. All right, just an indulgence, if you don't mind. 
a few words on a couple of different people. Let's start with Brett Bear. What's Brett oh. like? Oh, he's great. He's wonderful. So one of the two major shows. He I comes do on our show on. fairly regularly. We've had him on before. <laughs> what are you yeah, doing? Sure. I've tried flatter. Now I'm going to try shaming. <laughs> I'm going to see what works. <laughs> um, but he's great. I really enjoy. That's my favorite hour of television on um, each day. And I like that. I like how he handles the news. And I'm very thankful that he uh, puts people on his panel who represent the viewpoints of a lot of Americans. Yeah, it's the best news show on television. Absolutely is. He seems like a thoroughly decent human being. Do you deny that? He's absolutely wonderful yeah. in oh, person. That's good. And uh, what was it like knowing, at least to some extent, Charles Krauthammer? Uh, who also so, came uh, on our show regularly. Oh, stop it. I adored Charles, and he was someone who at first, you know, we would just fight a lot, but then we would continue fighting off air because we enjoyed it so much. And he was also very encouraging. You know, a lot of people take things so personally in D.C. right now, where if you disagree with them, then they decide that you're evil and you're horrible and you're beneath contempt. And he had this idea that when people disagreed, they should explore that disagreement and talk about it and see, you know, figure out where that disagreement led. And he didn't take it personally. So he really was encouraging in terms of, um, you know, he, he and I definitely disagreed on a lot, uh, you know, whether it's about Trump or foreign policy or whatnot, but we had fun in that disagreement. Yeah, you know, it's funny you should say that because my dominant memories of uh, Charles are, number one, how funny he was. Um, and number two, whenever I disagreed with him, I would think about it and think about it and think about it because mm-hmm. I thought exactly. I, need a, I need to have a really good case to disagree with this guy. And, you know, we need right. more people well, like that. Yeah. Well, even, you know, he comes from from that group of people that were very anti-Trump, but unlike so many of them, he wanted to understand why people like Trump and what they found appealing about him. And he was more humble about it than a lot of people are who just can't even understand how anybody could possibly vote for him. Well, that's doing it wrong in Brett Bear's show. You got to do it like they do on CNN. So you got nine people on a panel and hey, guess what? All nine of them agree. Oh, no disagreement stuff. whatsoever. Very stimulating. Yep. 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 Yeah. Molly Hemingway, Justice on Trial of Kavanaugh Confirmation in the Future of the Supreme Court, which she wrote with Carrie Severino. Uh, Molly, great to talk to you. I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks a million. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks. So you think I was successful on any level? I don't feel like I was. Were you trying to humiliate yourself and me by extension? (laughs) Well, then, yes, you were successful. I thought... Absolutely successful. I realized flattering was getting nowhere. Right. So then I thought, these people that you like and respect, who are also big deals... They've come on the show multiple times. It was the, mm, what's the term, transparency of the strategy that bothered me. <laughs> really. She's uh, uh, she's a serious woman. Yeah, no doubt. Which yeah. is great. Yeah. I cannot wait to read this book because watching it unfold was, was so disgusting. And part of it is, you know, I, I swear to God, my biggest fault is naivete. I can't believe people act so badly. In such a big way, and and, well, like, and can yeah. still suck air and sleep at night, and the rest of it. Like I just, I said, it's astounding. You can't shock politicians. Can't shock me at this point, right? But I do expect journalists to not sit on something that would could clear a guy of being a gang rapist, right? But that would interrupt the narrative. Yeah, that's disappointing. And print. Wait a minute. A piece of notebook paper, unsigned, arrived at a newspaper office. 
Let's go ahead and print that allegation. I mean, that's an abandonment of journalistic principles. So astounding and egregious. If it hadn't happened, I wouldn't believe it. And, you know, if if um, if the Weekly World News did that, I'd chuckle and think, well, everybody knows what they are. But for NBC to do that, well, you know what? Screw them. That's, I think of NBC about like I think about the Weekly World News at this point. They have made their bed by God. They will lie in it. I don't remember how we end these extra long podcasts. I think we just stop talking <laughs> at Mark. Mark. Extra large. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the metro. No mask, no metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.